0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi,
1: everyone, and welcome to Not What You Thought You Knew, a brand new podcast series from history. I'm your host, Dr. Fern Riddell, and in this episode, we're traveling back to the Restoration. That's the period when Charles II had just returned to his throne in 1660. We'll be focusing our lens on spy and playwright Aphra Ben. In 1666, Aphra Ben was sent to the Belgian city of Antwerp by Charles II on an important spying mission. In the previous century, Antwerp had been an important hub for the importation of sugar from the New World. Utilizing its connection to the North Sea via the Scheldt River, during Antwerp's golden age, it became the sugar capital of Europe. By the 17th century, when Afra Ben arrived in the city of windmills and golden weather vanes, she discovered an atmosphere of intrigue perfect for this budding spy. Ben found a modest inn, the Rosa Noble, where she would stay throughout her mission. Here, we find Britain's first female spy penning secret correspondence under her codename of Astrea. later her nom de plume as a writer, for the eyes of the court and the king. With each episode of Not What You Thought You Knew, I'm going to be picking an important but under-celebrated character from history, revealing a view of the past that subverts our expectations of what it looked like. All women together ought to let flowers fall upon the tomb of Afra ben, for it was she who earned them the right to speak their minds. So wrote Virginia Woolf about the subject of this episode, Afra Ben, a pioneering female playwright who also happened to be one of the best-paid spies of her generation. I am so excited to find out more about Afra Ben and a small glimpse into our history of the women who lived as double agents. It's something I know nothing about but am massively intrigued by. Later on in this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Elizabeth Bruton, curator of Top Secret, the Science Museum's latest exhibition that explores the world of code breaking, ciphers, and secret communications, to learn about some 20th century female spies who were involved in the smuggling of classified material to the Soviets. But opening this episode, I want to know more about Afra Ben and why the important role women played in espionage during the restoration has been largely forgotten. My first guest is Dr. Nadine Ackerman, a reader in early modern English literature at Leiden University, and someone who has published extensively on women's history and diplomacy. Her book, Invisible Agents, Women and Espionage in 17th Century Britain, is the very first study to analyse the role of early modern women spies. Thank you so much for joining us, Nadine. I'm so excited to talk to you. Can you tell me about one spy in particular, the amazing Aphra
2: Yes, um, she is really, really resourceful. Um, This is at a time when she hasn't become a writer yet, because a lot of people will know her as a playwright. uh, And she she sort of uh, publishes her her first play in the 1670s. But if we go back a a decade, it's 1666, Chelsea, who has been restored to the throne um, in, in Britain, is really paying her, and she has been recruited um, and working as officially as one of the, the first woman spies. And she is being sent to Antwerp to recruit a man as a double spy, uh, who was probably her ex-lover. And that's probably why she gets appointed to the mission.
1: That's absolutely incredible. Now, let's set the scene a little in 1666. This is the time of the Great Fire of London. Samuel Pepys, yep. one of our greatest diarists, is writing. What was it like at the society, for the society of the time?
2: So we're getting used to having a king again. Uh, and, but we're also in the midst of the Second Anglo-Dutch War. So there's also a war going on between the Netherlands and England about trade, um, and and she's basically being sent to hostile territory um, because she, she's in, in the kind of Spanish Netherlands, so it's, it's, it's a dangerous time for uh, a woman to, to travel. What is astonishing about Aphra Behn, she goes to Antwerp to recruit William Scott her ex-lover, as a double spy. What I think happens is that at some point she, she can no longer reach him. So she can no longer obtain information which will bring her um, a, a cash flow because that's what she's being paid for. She needs to provide um, the intelligence office in England information about the Anglo Dutch war that is going on. But she loses contact and he disappears from the scene. But I think her literary career started at that moment because it seems that she made up some of the intelligence reports. So at first, she started as a true spy, but at some point, she made up information. I think she discovered in Antwerp that she could sort of mimic uh, voices, uh, which she would later use in a literary
1: career as well. (laughs) So she really is viewing this as a way for her to survive, no matter how dangerous it might be.
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. And and she constantly complains about not being paid enough. But if, if you actually look at the figures, how much she is being paid, then she's actually being paid more than most of the male spies of this period.
1: So being a female spy really was a way to be as free as you could be as a woman at this time. Um, yes, yes. It, it's, it's
2: of course, some some of these women were... It's, of course, a time of civil wars, and, um, and, and later in Forever bane she's in the Anglo-Dutch War. So it's also, uh, some women just feel forced to do this, or, or feel forced to take the initiatives because they want to help their male kin who are being perhaps imprisoned or fighting on the battlefield. Um, it, it's a way of women to also be involved uh, in war.
1: What kind of tactics were they using to to get this information and were they trained or is it very much kind of a case of they just learned their skills as they were going? Well, you sort of see
2: spy trade being passed on from one spy to the next, uh, especially uh, women pass it down in the, in, in the family. But they are
1: the, well, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry Nadine, hang on so women pass this knowledge down in their families so we have generations of female spies
2: yes we have generations of female spies for instance uh, recipes, how to make invisible ink it's oh uh, <laughs> sort of hidden in these kind of recipe books amongst how to bake a cake that's you incredible. also have to have <laughs> a recipe of invisible inks.
1: that's absolutely so that, incredible
2: yeah. And uh, it's it's really kind of astonishing to sort of see that. Um and and even uh, you have these kind of printed uh books like the Queen's Cabinet Opened, which is about recipes but also has recipes of invisible ink. Um so and and women are also being taught how to write in, in cipher code. This is not just a Trade for diplomats, uh, but it's something that the the elite or a lot of aristocratic women are being taught how to um, really use a kind of cipher al- alphabet, a substitution alphabet. So you have uh, A is one and B is two and um, C is three. It's sometimes so rudimentary that it's also quite ridiculous, but they truly believed. Uh, that no one would be able to crack their, their uh, cipher codes. Um, and all these codes are fairly rudimentary. It's not that the women only use simple codes, it's just that the best situated diplomats also used uh, codes that were fairly rudimentary. And fortunately for us now, simple to break, as long as you have enough correspondence.
1: So, did Afroben have any of these recipe books with those secret recipes for invisible ink, or what were her specific tactics for spying?
2: She definitely employed cipher codes. Um, so, and she she used a very simple cipher code, uh, which is quite funny. She was the one who used A is one and B is two and C is three. Um, And and she begged for that cipher key for months. Um, But it it was more that she was allowed to communicate in secret with a small group of uh, colleagues and that she was able to use uh, cipher code to send her messages to England.
1: Now, Afra Ben is just one of a handful of remarkable female spies featured in Nadine's book Invisible Agents. And having heard about her remarkable life, I wanted to find out a little bit more about the other female spies littered throughout our history.
2: It's, it's a book that took me about five years to research in archives, libraries and private collections uh, in England and, and as well as in Scotland. And I was just uh, hunting uh, in the archives trying to find women spies. I had stumbled upon one. And um, that turned out to be quite a, a major player. <laughs> and I found that so intriguing, so funny. And I thought, why, why do I find it so fascinating? <laughs> and then I realised I'd never really heard about Women's Prize in this
1: period. Who was this major player?
2: This major player was a postmistress um, who was working in Brussels. But she was responsible also for the post to and from England. And um she had a monopoly in the Holy Roman Empire, which for is basically all of all of Western Europe. So she was also responsible for posts to and from France, to and from Portugal, uh to and from the Netherlands. Um and and she was opening everybody's letters and selling information to the highest bidder. And that, so she she wasn't even in it for religious purposes. She, she'd sold information to Catholics as well as Protestants. Uh, and she spied upon everybody's private communications.
1: Oh my God, that's incredible. What was her name?
2: Yes, it's uh, her name was Alexandrin, Alexandrina of Raya Farax, and she later became the Countess of Thurn and Taxes. What I find really funny as well is that the Turner Texas family still are responsible for the, the male in Germany so I always wonder what they are up to
1: <laughs> So this incredible book that took you five years you must have, you must know the archives of female spies intimately.
2: Yes um, well you sp- you spend months in, in the British Library but also in the National Archives and uh, smaller archives as well and um, you just try to read their sometimes coded correspondence, and obviously the writing in itself can be a challenge uh, because 17th century script is is different than the script we we nowadays use. Um, and sometimes they wrote in invisible inks, so the, the material itself is challenging. But it's so rewarding if if you come across one of them.
1: Did they leave an archive that we? can that that we can access easily or is it a case of you are literally looking for a needle in a haystack
2: well once you sort of know where to look it's surprising how many of them are still waiting to be recovered (laughs) so to speak Uh, for instance in in the Bodleian in Oxford in the Bodleian Library there are two archives one is the archive of John Thurlow, who was spymaster for Parliament during um, the Civil War and or actually after the Civil War and the Interregnum. And, but you also have the archive of the master on the opposite side, Edward Hyde, Earl of Clarendon. And those are thousands of documents, and some of them are uncatalogued. And it's just a very time-consuming process. But one of the things I really hope is that my book is opening people's eyes and and sort of offering them a new way to look at archives and be more aware that women were politically active in this period.
1: I think that's that's something that's so fascinating about your work because most people would not put women and espionage, especially political espionage, together at this time. Why do you think that is?
2: Well... It's the I think the answer is, is complicated because it has to do with several um problems, or um, we are still biased. Um, we sort of still believe, even though we are correcting that idea very slowly and gradually, um that women in the time weren't really politically active. so I'm not even talking about spies because spies are, of course, uh, meant to be invisible. Uh, but it, we sort of think that women in the time weren't politically active, and we now slowly uh, are sort of discovering that's not the case. Um, even in the period, they they thought that women uh, were more, more concerned with uh, domestic tittle-tattle. And they in the periods in the 17th century and in the 16th century, they thought women's bodies were kind of inferior. They were really incapable of political thought. So as soon as they came across a letter uh, in the century, they filed it separately or didn't even look at it. They thought it was not important because it would, would just contain gossip. I think later historians have believed in that myth. So they really didn't look at women's letters sort of thinking what contemporaries thought about these women was correct, and that women weren't politically active. Um, What is fascinating, I think, is that women really exploited that idea themselves. So if you are a woman spy and you would be caught, you could always say, well, I can't possibly have done this because I'm just a woman. (laughs) Uh, And you often see that in, in kind of interrogation reports.
1: I mean, that's a very subtle way to turn the system against the people who are accusing you, is to rely on this idea that women maybe aren't as intelligent. But we also know from this period that women were writing pamphlets, some were operating printing presses, and some were selling what were the early newspapers as well. So they're not absent from the political landscape, they're just, I guess, not in office.
2: Oh, yes, it's, And and even if you even think about women writers in this period, um, women who who wrote kind of literary texts in this period, they have been also hidden for quite a while. They have been sort of recovered since the 1980s because they published in a different form than men. Men often resorted to prints, whereas women uh, published in manuscripts, handwritten copies that were just copied, and perhaps even had a wider audience in some instances than the printed text. So we we have all these kind of modern concepts that we need to let go of to look at this period in a different way and, and thereby find female
1: activity. So do you think the fact that we have forgotten or ignored or passed over female spies and their history, is that a modern problem rather than a problem, that, well, rather than something that was absolutely credible at the time?
2: Well, I think it's layer upon layer. So it begins by, by them not being seen as important in the period. Uh, women's letters not being kept or archived as often as men's letters. Uh, So we have fewer women's letters, but we still have enough of them. But then there's another layer that in the the 19th century and the 20th century, women's letters were often not catalogued because women were seen as less important than men. So now that we are interested in women's voices, we almost have to start anew. We have to sort of go into the archives again and sort of sort of realise perhaps letters aren't catalogued but are still there uh, or aren't catalogued as we would, would catalogue them nowadays. Um, so it, it, it is a problem that consists of several layers, I think.
1: Mm, it almost seems that women seem to be better spies historically and in their own legacies if we manage to disguise ourselves this well. Yes,
2: yes, in a way they they have been sort of more successful in that <laughs> respect because we some of them are, are I'm sure still hidden in the archives.
1: So how dangerous was it to be a female spy at this time?
2: Well, I think one of the big advantages of this period is that they truly didn't believe that a woman could be capable of spying. So you see that their male um, colleagues, are being executed as soon as sufficient evidence is gathered that they were spying um and they are hanged. But the women uh are are caught as well, but they are being interrogated and you see them walking out of the prison cell within two or three weeks. And often they just start again. Um Lady Carlyle is, is one of the uh examples who who just walks out of out of prison cells constantly. And we all know her because she's been fictionalized in The Three Musketeers. But that whole story of My Lady de Winter and The Three Musketeers is based on the 17th century diary. Um, So her spying activities were uh, really real. And we don't know on which side she really was. Was she a double agent? Did she support the king? Or did she support parliament? We've never been able to find out
1: must have also been incredibly exciting. This sounds like such a vibrant cultural world to be part of.
2: Oh, yes. And, and what I've sort of seen in my research that some of these women spies were really in it for the adventure. <laughs> we, we sometimes think they just, oh, they're so politically motivated or they're so, they must be motivated by religion or um, some kind of deeper purpose. Uh, but there's, for instance, Lady Mordaunt who really writes that she, she, does, she feels bored and she wants to be active um, and she's in it for the adventure. So there's all, there must be an element of enjoyment in, in being a spy uh, because that must also explain why we are still fascinated by them. The whole idea of voyeurism is something that appeals to all of us.
1: Nadine, thinking of these, all of these incredible women from Aphra Bain to Alexandrina, who you talked about earlier, and to Lady Carlyle, is there anything that unites them all, any one characteristic or, or one way of looking at the world? I think
2: what unites all of them is that they started out as being invisible. Um... And and they have remained so for many historians. So I think they really use that, that aspect of being unsuspected, which being invisible is, of course, the best trait you could possibly have if you want to be a spy.
1: I find the life of Afra Ben and the many other women like her absolutely fascinating. Not long after her return from Belgium to the UK, Afra turned to playwriting as a means to survive. It was her refuge from starvation and she was prolific, turning to writing novels in her later life. Scholars and researchers have picked over her works, looking for clues and hidden meanings relating to her life as a spy. But in many ways, Afra took her secrets to the grave, dying in 1689. Her plays survived her, and in 1912, the Yorkshire Evening Post described Afra as one of those young women who proved themselves brave enough in olden times when occasion called, and someone who understood the darker side of life. Her complete works were edited by Montague Summers and published in 1915, leading to her reputation and life being firmly established in the 20th century. And by the 1950s, her reputation as a notorious female spy was discussed by women at public talks and lectures. But although she is one of our first female spies, Afroben certainly wasn't the last. But before that, a quick mention for history's brand new TV series, Damien Lewis Spy Wars*, featuring stories from the escape of US diplomats from Tehran, which you may know from the film Argo, to the spy swap, which brought Sergei and Yulia Skripal to Salisbury. It's well worth a watch. Leaving Afra Ben behind, we're going to look at a story that is closer in time to those featured by Damien Lewis in Spy Wars. And it seems female spies uncovered in England were not always working to support the British cause. In 1960, a huge operation conducted by our Secret Service unearthed the most prolific and dangerous network ever to operate in Britain, the Portland Spy Ring. Five Russian agents who were living under deep cover, protected by secret identities that allowed them to pass British naval intelligence back to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Harry Houghton, a former Royal Navy master-at-arms, became a Russian spy in 1951. Just two years later, while he was working in the Navy's underwater detection establishment, he also recruited his lover, Ethel G., who had access to highly classified material. Their contact was a man named Gordon Lonsdale. From the outside, he seemed to be a small-scale Canadian businessman, but his real name was Conan Molody, a KGB handler. While G. Houghton, and Lonsdale worked to secure these naval secrets, the method for transmitting their discoveries back to Russia lay at the feet of Helen and Peter Kroger, antiquarian booksellers who lived in Ryslip. The Krogers were, in fact, Lona and Morris Cohen, American KGB agents who had assumed new identities in the UK after Lona had successfully smuggled out schematics of the American design for the atomic bomb. Their British bungalow was the network's communications hub, and from here, hundreds of documents of our naval warfare when transmitted back to the Soviet Union. To learn more about the women of the Portland spy ring and how the role of women spies has changed over the years, I spoke to Dr Elizabeth Bruton curator of the Science Museum's new exhibition, Top Secret, which tells the story of espionage over the last 100 years.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said
1: yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said,
0: what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass***?
1: Thank you so much for joining me today, Liz. You are the Curator of Technology and Engineering at the Science Museum, and the Science Museum currently has an amazing new exhibition on called Top Secret, From Ciphers to Cyber Security. This sounds incredibly exciting. Can you tell me a little bit about it?
3: Yeah, so this free exhibition, which runs at the Science Museum in London until February next year, is an incredibly exciting exhibition, which reveals stories about secret communications codes and ciphers over the past one hundred years from the First World War through to the present day through the centenary of GCHQ, aka the Government Communications Headquarters, um, one of the slightly lesser known secret intelligence agencies here in the UK. And we had unprecedented access to their historic collections um, and we were able to interview some of their current members of staff as well to reveal some previously hidden and secret stories um, related to the importance of secret communications, um, particularly through to the present day and the sort of important aspects of cybersecurity in the world today.
1: We've heard a little about how during the English Civil War especially female spies were becoming especially prominent because women weren't as obviously suspected of being a spy. Is this history of female spies that we don't really talk about? Is this something that you think we're going to become more aware of? With with things like this exhibition and this, this new knowledge and the kind of the opening up of our spy organizations to give their history public access?
3: Yeah, so there, so there is um, a much longer history of women involved in spycraft and spies and secret communications um, stories, for example, from the American War of Independence, of women being able to travel between, you know, across enemy lines and so on um, through to the present day. Um, while they mightn't have had such prominent roles in the actual act of code breaking, two thirds of the people who worked at Bletchley Park during the Second World War were women who were doing often what considered to be thankless clerical tasks. Um, but in fact, their roles in, you know, deciphering, um, if manually deciphering, translating, indexing intelligence uh, contributed very much to the successes at Bletchley Park. And there were, of course, prominent, some prominent, um, a few prominent female codebreakers like uh, Joan Clark and Mavis Beatty and others who very much contributed to the success, successes of Bletchley Park during the Second World War.
1: So let's get into the Portland Spiring. Can you tell me a little bit about why the Portland Spiring exists? What's happening between the UK and Russia at this time?
3: So this is... Set, so the Portland Spiring were operating in the UK between the mid-1950s and early 1960s. So at one of the slightly warmer periods in the Cold War. Um, Britain was most prominently working on its first nuclear submarine program and um, the Soviets wanted information about that. Well, they wanted information about a lot of the naval technology that Britain was experimenting with at the time, but, but they were particularly interested in the nuclear submarine program because this would be a new generation of almost completely silent nuclear submarines. Um, you know that the power supply was completely different. um it offered a completely new generation of submarine technology that would be able to you know hide away in oceans around the world far easier than the previous generation. um and so, through Harry Houghton um and his lady friend Ethel G, they were taking naval top secret naval documents. Um, They were copying them and then handing them over to the spying master, Gordon Lonsdale, who was actually a Russian illegal living in the UK. He, in turn, was passing this information on to Peter and Helen Kroger. Um, Obstensibly, he was an antiquarian bookseller. She was a housewife. They were living um, in Cranley Drive in Ryslip uh, in North London, that well-known center of spying. And um, they were, in turn, turning the secret documents into microdots so they could photograph a document and shrink it down to the to a full size uh, to the size of a full stop and they were communicating these back to Soviet Russia um, we have a micro dot reader on display in the exhibition in the gallery about the portland firing and they're also using a par- powerful radio transmitter um, to arrange you know the receipt and delivery of these secret naval documents to this day um, we don't know precisely what secrets they stole because they took the documents out, photographed them and put them back. Um, but it has been estimated that it saved uh, the Soviet Union between 10 and 20 years of scientific research, particularly in relation to nuclear submarines.
1: So this is really a devastating spiring that exists in the UK at this time. They're doing real yeah. damage. Yes.
3: Yeah, so as, as far as we know, they were the most successful spiring in the UK during the Cold War.
1: The lives of the women who are involved in this spying is one of, of constant deceit. It must have been incredibly hard. Do we know how they felt when they were eventually betrayed in many ways and and captured by our security forces?
3: Well, for a long time, both both Peter and Helen um, protested their innocence um, and claimed that um, that 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 they they were completely innocent and this was a case of um, that that they weren't guilty of the charges being put to them. Uh, Eventually their fingerprints were sent over to the FBI in America and that revealed their true identity of Lona and Morris Cohen um, who were both Americans um, and had been spies for Soviet Russia um, since, well, at least in Lona's case since the early 1940s. So she was recruited through her husband. Um, She was the daughter of Polish Catholic immigrants. Um, She became a socialist first and a communist. Um, Then after she married uh, her husband and her marriage in 1941, she was recruited. um, And she was quite an active, um, you know, instigator and spy in her own right. When her husband was sent off for military service, she took over some of the tasks that he was doing, um, uh, obtaining intelligence from, Um, various industrial factories that would have been producing technology for the military. Um, She was involved in some of the um, nuclear scandals in the United States at the time, and they eventually had to flee, Um, Lona and Morris had to flee the United States in the 1950s, uh, in 1950, in fact, Um, and they fled to Moscow first, and then they were sent to Poland. Um, She was trained as a wireless and cipher clerk. Um, So she was definitely her husband's equal in this task. Um, There's absolutely no doubt about it that she was very actively involved. She wasn't just some sort of um, cover story, if you will.
1: Do you think that the way we view female spies in the West, especially in the UK and perhaps in the US as well, as as maybe less... um, Less dangerous or less helpful or or not quite as as important, obviously Russia at this time it had had women had had the vote since nineteen nineteen the most decorated female sniper was Russian um, and and they also had the, the bombing squad of the Night Witches. So women's role in Russia, in Russia's, in Russia's military history, in their political history, was far stronger as an equal than it was seen at the West. Do you think perhaps that was something that was very attractive to Lona, aka Helen, as, as an identity she was reaching for or, or wanted to preserve?
3: I think that might have been part of it, but I think more generally it was the more general politics of the Soviet Union that was attracted to her, the ideals of socialism and communism, um, first and foremost, of which better representation for women was probably part of that, yes. Um, But I think, you know, when we look, for example, more generally across the Portland Spiring, um, there's a lot of different motivations for why each member took part um for harry houghton it was money, pure and simple um and the parent and and other activities that gave him access to for ethel G, um a spinster even though i don't like the use of the term but that's how she described it at the time um who was in love with him at the time um it was very much about love and indeed when they eventually were released released from prison um they did go on to get married um although the surveillance records of the Portland Spiring before their arrest reveals that she was one of quite a few women that he was interested in at the time. Um, For the Kroger's or Coen's, depending on which name you go with, it was very much political motivation. Um, And for Gordon Lonsdale, it was patriotism for the Soviet Union. So they all came with different motivations um, across the board, men and women. Um, And yes, for... Helen Kroger, there might have been some um, idea that aspiring to the increased opportunities available for women in the Soviet Union at the time, uh, particularly compared to Britain in the 1950s.
1: Speaking to Liz got me thinking about women's motivations for setting foot in the world of espionage. Spying offered women more danger, more excitement, and the chance to serve a higher purpose than was available to most women in the West during the 20th century. After all, this is the time when the RAF was advertising in the back of school magazines, asking young girls to join up so they could be tea ladies. And what about Afra Ben's legacy today? Why is our knowledge of her so limited? Well, it might just be the Victorians' fault. Writing in 1857, the Globe declared, The days when such women as Afra Ben can hope to be palatable to the female sex are, we believe, gone forever. And by 1938, the Daily Mirror announced, of extreme coarseness, her novels are forgotten. Hopefully by returning to the archives, we will find more evidence of these amazing women's lives. A big thank you to my guests, Dr. Nadine Ackerman and Dr. Elizabeth Bruton for their contributions to this episode. Revealing the remarkable true stories behind some of the most gripping and significant international spy operations of the last 40 years, watch Damian Lewis' Spy Wars on Mondays at 9pm on History or Catch Up On Demand. And if you want more episodes from us, please rate and review the series on your podcast app. Unlike our spy friends, you won't need to use a cipher in Invisible Ink to contact us. We'd love to hear your suggestions. So just find us on social media by searching for History UK or Fern Riddell. And don't forget to use the hashtag Not What You Thought. This episode of Not What You Thought You Knew was hosted by me, Dr. Fern Riddell, produced by Kim Sargent and Pete Ross, and our series producer is Sam Pearson.